Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Wally Koval, and I'm a traveller who likes to explore locations that look as though they've been plucked from the screen of a Wes Anderson film. My guest today is the founder of what has been dubbed the coolest account on Instagram. Brooklyn-based Wally Koval, together with his wife Amanda, are the curators behind Accidentally Wes Anderson, an Instagram account that features photos of real-life locations that look like they could be part of Wes Anderson's cinematic world. The director's distinctive visual style makes him one of the most recognisable auteurs of our time. Think pastel colour palettes, front-on facades and perfectly symmetrical composition, then throw in a touch of nostalgia for good measure. Wally has quite accidentally become a Wes Anderson aficionado after creating the Instagram account back in 2017 as a personal travel bucket list. Since then, it's grown into a global community of over 1 million followers, and now there's a brand new book that has been given the Wes Anderson stamp of approval, featuring 200 of the most idiosyncratic and interesting locations on Earth, and a foreword penned by the famous filmmaker himself. In this episode, join Wally as we stumble upon some of the most quirky and unexpected places imaginable, from a tiny typewriter repair shop in the middle of Manhattan to a sumo wrestling tournament in Tokyo. We stop for an espresso at a Milanese cafe actually designed by Wes Anderson, with its sorbet-hued decor and homage to 1950s Italian pop culture. After that, there's no destination too whimsical, as we visit everywhere from a snow globe museum in Vienna to an Antarctic post office at the ends of the earth. Here's Wally Koval. Hi, Wally. How are you? Hi, I'm doing very well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm fantastic, thank you. I'm delighted to have you on The Escape Artist. You are an avid traveller, an architecture enthusiast, and a film buff. So I've been looking forward to this conversation as they're three of my favourite things as well. (laughs) But before we delve into the world of Wes Anderson, where are you at the moment? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, such a great part of the world to be based. And have you lived there long? Uh, maybe uh, 13 or 14 years are going on now. Oh, wow. So you must know it inside out. Can you describe a perfect day in the city? Like if you had someone coming to town, what would you recommend that they do in New York? You know, I get this question a lot from family who visit mm-hmm. or friends who are coming to town, but also more recently from adventurers and members of the community who reach out and say, you know, we're coming to New York. What should we do? What should we see? You know, there are definitely the standard landmarks that you may see or think about when you think of New York Times Square and the Statue of Liberty, etc. But I think there are these really smaller, nuanced neighborhoods that don't necessarily get the time of day that I think that they deserve. But also, there are interesting things that you can find. My kind of perfect Saturday or Sunday is walking over the Williamsburg Bridge from our apartment and just kind of exploring the Lower East Side. I feel like that's one of my favorite places to wander around because there's always something going on. There's really inexpensive street food that you can kind of grab here or there, small cafes, and you can make your way kind of down around the the bottom of Manhattan, which 
typically is not really explored that much. And there are all these interesting buildings that just, you find yourself looking up. I'm a fan of being a tourist in your own town, so to speak, and finding myself just trying to get lost. And New York makes that pretty easy from time to time. (laughs) So once I find myself lost and I'm able to kind of create that puzzle piece of the area that I'm in and attach it to the map of New York that I have in my head. That's always a good day, in my opinion. You're so right, Wally. And New York is a city that's best explored by foot. I lived there a few years ago and I arrived in February in the middle of winter. Um, It was minus 20 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, (laughs) but basically... Cold. It was a brutally cold winter and I was just ready to fly back to Australia, but I personally and I spent my days just walking around each neighbourhood. I did have to stop at coffee shops along the way to warm up and I was really, really cold and highly caffeinated by the end of the day, but it was just the best way to stumble upon the most special places that I otherwise wouldn't have heard about. So what would be your pick for a hidden gem in New York City? There's a number of interesting hidden gems. Um, There's... There's a shop on the Lower East Side that's dedicated to just different types of pencils. (laughs) Uh, CW Pencil, I think they're called. There's also a a mainstay in the East Village from way back, way, way back, and it's called Casey Rubber Stamps. It's this tiny, tiny shop, and you walk in, and if there's other customers in there, you can barely get around them. But he not only has a ton of standard rubber stamps that are there, but he makes custom stamps. And he himself is an absolute character. He has to be a a gentleman in his mid-60s, I would say, uh, with the thickest of Irish accents. And uh, I think on the front door, it says they keep artist hours. So it says, you know, sometime between 11 and 8, maybe later if we feel like it. Uh, So those, (laughs) those sorts of little hidden gems are amazing. And then if you work your way up, you have the uh, Gramercy Typewriter Company, which actually is in our book, which is still one of my favorite places that I stumbled upon. It's one of the last remaining typewriter repair shops, but they also sell typewriters, but it's this tiny little shop. It's a third generation family business started by the grandfather, the father, and now the son run it. And still to this day, you know, go out and do repairs with his, his giant trusty briefcase full of uh, little mechanical what have you. I don't even know what's, <laughs> what is in there. But it was such a fun little experience happening upon all those places. But the beauty of New York is that there are so many of those little shops and little experiences to be found no matter where you're roaming throughout the city. Mm, yeah, there's such niche and uh, a wonderfully idiosyncratic little gems that you've mentioned. Do you know, is there a place that one could eat or drink that you think is a small, lesser-known spot that the listeners might be interested in? You know, the dumpling spots that are just off the cusp of the Lower East Side in in Chinatown, there's one in particular called Vanessa's Dumplings. And it's like BYOB, grab a a beer or something from the bodega up the street, pop in for uh, a scallion pancake and uh, some dumplings, and you're out of there for (laughs) $2.50, and you're on your way. I think of the Lower East Side, and I talk about it a lot, because it's just such an eclectic area so close to Chinatown and so it's just right in the middle and right next to the bridge and this architecture and this history and this this grit to it that exists. 
So those little DIY-ish experiences are some of my favorite. It's so nice to hear such personal recommendations from a New Yorker such as yourself. You know, the first time that I visited New York City in my early 20s, I stayed at a hotel that I feel is very Wes Anderson-esque, and it's called the Jane Hotel in West oh, Village. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it has the the dark wood lobby desk and the red bellboy outfit and an old creaky lift. And the character-filled interiors are inspired by um, luxury ship and train cabins. Mm -hmm. So there's these bunk-style beds and porthole windows and long corridors. And apparently it was built in 1908, I think, as a hotel for sailors. So it retains that, that sort of nautical feel that it has. And historically speaking, it was actually where the survivors of the Titanic stayed just after the ship sunk and they were rescued. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It is absolutely crazy, the stories that exist within that hotel in and of itself. It's just this tiny little place down an unassuming street on the very west side of Manhattan and when you come across it, you're walking down the street and you're like, am I on the right? It's so <laughs> quiet. Is there a, oh, there it is. And I don't know if you made it to the top of the hotel, but they have one of the most incredible little bars on the top of that hotel that has a terrace that looks out over the river. Mm. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that RuPaul lived in that oh, right. upstairs bar area for I don't know how many years, but that that was one of the the little tidbits that I remember <laughs> learning about that place. And especially when I was in there, just being like, I would have loved to live in this space. Oh my gosh, of course you would. It immediately strikes one as accidentally Wes Anderson. Yeah. It's the first place that I stayed in New York, so it still holds that really special place in my heart. And I just remember those amazing parties in the Grand Ballroom, which is decorated with antique furniture and oil paintings and these sort of lush palm trees. Um, and so it's hard to think of a more special place to stay. I know. It's difficult to think. Uh, yeah, that that's definitely one for the books. <laughs> and although you know the city so well, you're actually not a native New Yorker. So where did you grow up, Wally? I grew up in a town that probably not many people know of, but uh, Wilmington, Delaware, a tiny state about two and a half hours south of New York City. So Delaware's isn't it the second smallest state in the United States? It is. And do you have a favorite childhood travel memory? I have this idea of American children all going off to like a summer camp, a little bit like Camp Ivanhoe from Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> do you have an experience like that? You know what? Uh, I hated summer camp, I'm not going to lie. So my, I think my parents <laughs> gave that one shot and then I was like, yeah, not for me. Well, it sounds like you wanted to run away a bit like the children in the film. Yeah, I wanted to get out of there. <laughs> you know, my favorite childhood memories from, from travel are really beach vacations. We used to go to the Jersey Shore, which has its own connotation, but um, not that type of Jersey Shore, but it's called Long Beach Island. And I remember going to the general store and buying some licorice for 25 cents or whatever it is. And it sounds like, wait, how old is Wally? Was this in the 50s or something? <laughs> no, this wasn't. I, you know, I'm 36, you know, so let's go back to the early 90s when this was going on. Literally, this last summer we were there and you know, it's just special seeing those places that are so kind of, it's like this time capsule, mm. you know, the pink 
front of these motels that have been around for so long and and the the family owners that still run the shops and the small mini golf places with a giant monkey or gorilla that's like blocking the hole from these mechanical uh and and wooden uh features of them it's just the whole thing is wonderful and getting the elephant ear pastry what's an elephant ear pastry an elephant ear pastry is exactly what you might think. <laughs> it is shaped like an elephant ear and it has this like crispy, flaky, sugary taste to it and this texture that's just perfect for coffee. <laughs> oh, well, if any of the listeners head to Jersey Shore, they'll have to try the elephant ear pastry. So you're obviously really drawn to nostalgia, the way that you talk about places that feel like they're a time capsule. And a lot of uh, Wes Anderson's work is typically set in those very stylized worlds, um, wistfully inspired by previous eras and set, you know, decades prior. Have you always been a devoted fan of Wes Anderson? Oh, sure. I've been a fan of his for many years. I remember seeing Rushmore on television or something with uh, my dad was watching it and remember coming in and sitting down and being like, what's this? Mm. And I was just hooked. It was so odd and quirky. The humor and the the imagery was just vivid in its own odd manner that I, I was I was hooked immediately. I've always been a fan of his work for sure. Mm, and do you have a favorite? I do not. Anytime I'm asked what my favorite Wes Anderson film is, I always say that I give a, you know, a top three, but not in any order because, you know, I feel like there's like different emotions and different things and different moods that each film evokes. Mm -hmm. And although they're obviously all tied together, my favorites change on a daily basis depending <laughs> on how I'm feeling that day. Yeah. You know, today I feel like I would go with Life Aquatic, uh, probably, I definitely say Rushmore. That's always in there. And uh, and Dar's Yearling Limited. That's the vibe for today. Okay. I'm really feeling that <laughs> vibe. You put two of my favorites in that list. As nice. Well. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So uh, a question that I always ask my guests, and this ties in really nicely with you and what you do. Is there a book, a film, a song, or piece of art that inspired you to travel somewhere? That's a really good question. You know, I think that in a, a serendipitous way, there was definite inspiration from the Darjeeling Limited to travel to India. Shortly after seeing that film, a good friend of mine at the time, his father worked in Mumbai. I had seen the film. I was smitten with it and everything about India and wanted to learn a little bit more about the culture and the people. And that week after, he said, oh, yeah, I'm actually going to visit my dad. And I said, can I come? <laughs> <laughs> really? And he said, yeah, of course you can. So I, you know, luckily lived in New York and was able to go to the consulate and get a visa approved in a very short period of time. And and I think the following Monday, we were on a plane to Mumbai. So ah, I love that spontaneity. And what's one of the most vivid memories that you have from that trip? Uh, while we were in Mumbai, our friend Depesh took me on his moped and he asked me if I liked street food. And I said, uh, yes, of course. And so we rode through the streets, some of the most congested, busy streets, but we pulled up uh, to this small stand and just the smell was incredible of whatever this gentleman was cooking in absolute boiling uh, oil in on a very hot day. I don't know how he was doing it, but it's funny because that really instilled a lot for me when it came to travel because 
there's one thing to say, oh, I want to go and experience this thing in a place, right? But when you go and you walk around or you kind of try to get lost a little bit or you allow yourself not necessarily to just follow a specific itinerary, throughout those little pathways is where you meet people where you stumble upon certain things that you never would have known even if you did all the Googling in the world. When you really dive deep into those experiences, those are the ones that really make the most lasting Mm. impression and I think are some of the most special. Mm. It's allowing the space between those planned moments just to let the magic happen. And I think Mm. that's why I'm a huge fan of train travel. And I probably talk about this way too much on the podcast because I love trains. But you said that you were inspired to go to India because of watching the Darjeeling Limited. Well, after seeing that film, I always dreamed of taking an old world train journey through India. So a couple of years ago, I actually went on the Maharaja's Express, which rattled its way all through Rajasthan, known as the land of the kings because of its fairy tale palaces and majestic forts. And then the train swept all the way down to the coastal metropolis of Mumbai. And it was straight out of a Wes Anderson film. I mean, the elaborately decorated dining carriages, one of which was peacock themed, where you'd be served your meals during the journey, to the cabins that had this amazing wallpaper and the sleeper style beds, to the way that the the staff were dressed, just like out of the Darjeeling Limited and how Wes Anderson depicts it, you know, these beautiful saris that the women are wearing and the men are dressed in these eye-catching, colourful turbans. Mm, mm -hmm. And then you step off the train for an excursion and you're met by this sort of chaotic energy and sense of celebration because there's a band there to meet and greet you and there are dancers and then a string of golden marigolds are flung around your neck and then camels appear out of out of nowhere and so it's just so over the top and quirky so it's it's perfect for accidentally Wes Anderson actually amazing and i'm curious to know what's the backstory behind the creation of accidentally wes anderson like what sparked the idea for you well you know the beginning of awa was in the basis of a travel bucket list (laughs) for me and Amanda. We had started our own, you know, we've been together for about the same time I've been in New York. So we had just started our international travel together. We had been lucky enough to go a few years prior to Buenos Aires and Uruguay. And, you know, a few years after to Lisbon and Paris along the way. And through that, we said on the way back, we're like, we need to just plan for our next five days, three days, seven days, 10 days that we can tear ourselves away from work and, you know, save up enough cash to just kind of go somewhere and do something. So if a time period allowed itself for us to be able to kind of get away, instead of just kind of flying by the seat of our pants saying, where should we go? said, well, let's just try to start putting a bucket list together. Might as well. And I started seeing these locations on on Instagram and online and that just looked like they had been plucked from a Wes Anderson film that did not exist. And I was really blown away by the fact that after I did a little research and some digging, that they did exist and these places were real and ultimately, eventually found that each of them had their own very interesting story behind them. And we just started planning these <laughs> these escapes in our mind and uh, started doing so via Instagram. And that's where it came from. Wow. So it's really a case of uh, of life imitating art, imitating life. 
Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> so these real-life locations that look like they could be part of Wes Anderson's cinematic world, you found them online and started curating the images on your own Instagram account. So how do you define the particular Wes Anderson visual aesthetic? Like what does it look like if our listeners wanted to submit an image to be featured on your account? What do you look out for? Sure. When you look at something that's Wes Anderson, the way that I put it is that there are a number of characteristics, right? There are a number of kind of boxes that you can check that would say, oh, that make that, yes, that's definitely, the symmetry makes that Wes Anderson, the, the color palette makes it Wes Anderson. But really, I think that you don't necessarily have to check every single box. Maybe you check one, maybe you check two, but there's this almost amorphous box, so to speak, that is ever-changing and undefinable that almost you just know it when you see it. Mm. And like Anderson's films are a portal to another universe, all your curated collection of photos have that je ne sais quoi and the right visual aesthetic, but they also have to have an intriguing narrative behind them, don't they? Yes, they absolutely do. And we always say that AWA is this intersection of distinctive design, but an unexpected and interesting narrative. So the photos that come along, of course, we get around 3,000 to 3,500 submissions via our website every month. And we look at every single one. And every single one is AWA in its own right. We only post one a day, right? So we, we out of those thousands that we receive, we uh, only unfortunately can post 30 a month <laughs> because we only really do once a, once a day. Mm. But the beauty in it is that somebody went out into the world on their day, out, about, wherever, and they stopped for a second and they saw something and they snapped a photo. And in that photo, whether or not it's you know perfectly captured or not, there was a feeling, there was a moment. There was something that they felt that they thought they should capture it and they wanted to share it with us and share it with this community. And I find that to be very special because you can find AWA or these experiences, these moments every day, no matter where you are. You don't have to live in New York or in Paris or in London. You can live anywhere. I live in Wilmington, Delaware, and we have some incredible things around here that I'm willing to bet nobody would ever <laughs> know about. And I didn't know about them until I just started kind of looking at things through that slightly different perspective that we had gained through doing this every day. It's kind of finding a visual magic in the everyday. And that's what I love about Accidentally Wes Anderson. I mean, I've been following your account since early days, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think that it definitely changed the way that I viewed places as I travelled. And obviously I'm a big Anderson fan and have long been familiar with his visual aesthetic. Mm. But the AWA account certainly encouraged me to see moments on my travels through this very specific lens. And I just think that the concept of accidentally Wes Anderson just so succinctly <laughs> and perfectly captures um, that feeling. I, I love to hear that. I really, really love to hear that because, look, I'm Amanda and I, we're not experts in much. We're not, <laughs> we're not you know, trained photographers. I do not know 
specific things about architecture. I mean, I know a few things because I've been reading these for the past three years Mm. and doing this research, but we're not experts, Mm. right? We're just normal people who like to travel. And we found that when we would go to a place, like when we went to Lisbon or we went to Paris, the first thing that we went to was we just looked to see if Anthony Bourdain had gone there. Mm. And if he had, we watched whatever that episode was and took notes, you know. And then we would go to Atlas Obscura. And we would try to find if they had any interesting locations within the place we were going to go. And then that was kind of it. If we were in the U.S., we would look at Roadside America, which also has these quirky little things that are attractions that you might not see. Uh, But the main thing was we were trying to go beyond that top 10 list, Mm. right? I didn't just want to Google top things to do in insert city here because, sure, I want to see them, Mm. but I definitely think that there's so much more beyond them. When we were in Tokyo, right, we had multiple places on our list of things to do. But somebody had reached out and said, I know you're going to Tokyo and this is what I think you should see. You're probably going to go see X. It's funny because I forget what the main attraction was. But four or five blocks from that main attraction, if you go down this little alley, there's a coffee shop where this gentleman, who is now over 100 years old, I believe, is still making coffee in the same way in this tiny little hole in the wall with these beautiful, this beautiful china. That's the place that's memorable. You're so right. And you visited Japan presumably because you were somewhat inspired by Wes Anderson's film, Isle of Dogs, a movie which certainly ticks off a great many of the tourist cliches of Japan, you know, the the cherry blossoms, the sushi chefs, the sumo wrestlers, the taiko drummers. Um, but what were your impressions of Tokyo? What did you get up to and did you find any like special little spots and things to do along the way? Tokyo, I think in a word, was magical. From everything that I had read and from everybody I had spoken to, Tokyo was a different beast. It was huge. It is huge compared to New York City. And It is just, it's vast. There's so much to explore. How are we going to pack this all in? How are we going to get around? You know, I just, all these things are going through my mind. And I'm I'm expecting this incredibly fast-paced, loud, et cetera, et cetera. And when we touched down, it was the most quiet place I had ever been. With hundreds of thousands of people bustling around on the trains in the morning, there was this sense of quiet and order that I... Never could have imagined. You know, we spent seven or eight days in Tokyo. We went down to Kyoto for four or five days. We had an adventure uh, in in many different ways. We did go and see sumo. We did go and experience the sushi bars with the rotating sushi conveyor belt, which honestly was one of the coolest and (laughs) most interesting little things. One of the best times we had was We had, Amanda and I wandered around this outer neighborhood and we saw this sign for an archery shop, I guess. It just had a bullseye on it. I obviously couldn't read the writing, but I saw these large bows inside. And so we went inside and luckily somebody was there who did speak English and was not like, you need to get out of here, stop touching our stuff. (laughs) But I said, you know, is there anywhere that we could shoot one of these or learn how to do this. And she said, well, we don't actually do that here. But if you walk up the road, four or five blocks, make a left, there is almost the equivalent of what you or I would think of as a YMCA or like a community center. Hmm. And we walked to this community center. We 
using a lot of pointing and gestures, explained what we were there to. And they told us, this is not the right day for it, but we do typically do it in this back room. And I, obviously wanting to capture photos and videos, I said, can we check out this back room? And she said, well, they're actually doing something back there. And she said, hold on a second. She went back and asked. There was a gentleman there who was a little curious of why me and Amanda were standing there. Mm -hmm. But he welcomed us into the back room and there were maybe six or seven gentlemen sitting around a small table on the ground and they were eating sandwiches. And it opened up to an outside area. It was almost like a hardwood floor covered indoor area where they had these crossbows and targets at the end of it across a lawn. And I was I was just fascinated. I wanted to know more about this place. Mm. I wanted to know what these guys were doing. And they were so kind. They invited us in. They gave us some of their, you know, sweet treats and and what they were having. And they showed us how to fire these crossbows and <laughs> just welcomed us in. It And this is not, here's the thing. If you signed up for this, you, you can't sign up for it. You I don't even know how you would sign up for it. I don't I guess it was just one of those things that you happen upon, mm. right? That was one of the experiences. And the photo that we set up a little timer and took a picture with these older gentlemen and, you know, holding up a crossbow, that's one of the most memorable experiences that I have from that trip yeah. because I you couldn't plan it if you tried. <laughs> yeah, they're always the best. The most memorable travel experiences are the ones that take you by surprise. Speaking of special experiences, you mentioned earlier that you were fortunate enough to get to see some sumo wrestling. In all the times that I visited Japan, I have never seen sumo. What was the experience like? Like, Can you describe it for us? Oh, it was one of the most interesting cultural experiences ever. There's so much ritual around it. There's so much that you don't expect. You, you, you could say, oh, yeah, it's just two big guys running into each other. There is so much history. We could talk this entire podcast just <laughs> just about that. You need to find but... a niche sumo podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but in all seriousness, it doesn't surprise me at all because it's a culture that's steeped in so much tradition. And now I'm just super intrigued. Where did you go to see the sumo and how could a visitor uh, create a similar experience to what you had? Oh, well, they have they have national sumo tournaments our timing just so happened to align with one of the sumo tournaments taking place in Tokyo. They do take place around the country. And what we wanted to do was kind of get there early in the day when, you know, I guess you could say the, the quote, minor leagues were taking place or the preliminaries maybe was is probably a better uh, analogy. But when we arrived, it was just this massive, incredible structure and it's right in the middle of town. It's right in the middle of the city and, and there's hustle and bustle all around it. And when you enter, there was this sense of order and calm. You know, they they have all these gentlemen, maybe seven or eight of them at a time. They come out, they circle around this square that's in the center of the arena. And you have you have seats that are going up on all four sides, almost in this upside down pyramid shape. And they turn and face the audience. They put their hands in the air. They clap. They then turn to face one another. These bells and this music is taking place. This entire big ceremony is going on. It just, it was fascinating. I, my mind was just going, I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what the, the ritual is, but I'm blown away by what I'm seeing. 
They're two, I guess you would call them, they're not referees by any means. I'm sure, you know, there's there's a very specific name for who they are and what they do, but they're dressed in a completely different garb. They have these long robes that go down and they have hats that they wear and they have these sticks that they kind of wipe away the the dust, almost kind of get the, the ring in shape. And they call up two men who stand there and the whole thing is, spiritual in a sense. And it's all about feeling out the other person. And they crouch down. And as soon as both of them touch the ground at the same time, that's when they go at each other. Mm. Whether it's the costumes, whether it's the garb, whether it's the sounds, whether it's the bells and the so much going on that it's almost sensory overload. And it was just, it was just, and it wasn't something that was super expensive. It's something that everybody can do. I think our tickets were 15 or $20 or something like that. Sure. We were in the nosebleeds, but I think that's the best place to take it all in, oh, if you ask me. Wow. I'm surprised that it was so affordable, but I can imagine that a night out slurping down some ramen and then heading to the sumo would be so unforgettable. But to change the subject slightly, I'm just dying to know your whole feed features places that has a very specific feel. What do you think is the most Wes Anderson-esque destination in the entire world? I don't think that there is one. I think that there are more than I could ever count. Mm. Sure, you could say that the colorful buildings and the architecture of Copenhagen might exude AWA and Wes Anderson to the nth degree. Mm. You could also say that about the architecture in London or even in Dublin. I know that in our book in particular, we have many places from the UK. Um, Trying to think of another city that comes in so often. But I would I would probably put Budapest at the top of that list. But the beauty of it is that you can literally find it anywhere in the world, no matter where you might be. Mm. And it's funny that you brought up Budapest because despite being entirely fictional, the Grand Budapest Hotel is listed on TripAdvisor with a near <laughs> five-star rating. So it really blurs the lines between the made-up world of the auteur and the real-life location. So saying we're in this whimsical Wes Anderson mood, I have a few hypothetical questions that I wanted to throw your way mm-hmm. and the uh, listeners at home can play along too and you're welcome to message me your answers on Instagram if you want. Um, but firstly, if I was a travel agent and you could book a package holiday through me, which one of these vacations would you choose and why? So number one is a voyage on the Bellafonte on an expedition led by Steve Zizou in search of the rare jaguar shark and a one-hour submarine ride will be included in that deal. (laughs) Number two, a 10-day journey on board the luxurious Darjeeling Limited sleeper train through Rajasthan. Option number three is a stay in the Canary Yellow Suite of Hotel Chevalier in Paris and there's a buffet breakfast included. And option number four is a camping trip on Rhode Island, a la the film Moonrise Kingdom. So which one of those would you choose? A, because I think that that, (laughs) I was going to stop you, but I was actually very interested to hear the other options from this hypothetical travel agent, to be quite clear. Yeah. Um, But absolutely. Oh, that, look, ever since I saw that, you know, the diorama that was made of the, the, the Belafonte cut in, cut you know, down the center and they have that little kind of cut back and forth up and down through the different rooms. Mm. I mean, that would be absolutely incredible. How could you not want to do that? 
and going in the little submarine down to to see the shark. <laughs> but don't don't get in the helicopter. I wouldn't recommend. No, I'm going to steer clear. Of the <laughs> yeah, I think you should because I'm not sure that my travel agency's insurance will cover you for that. Um, and for the final <laughs> crazy hypothetical, I promise, if you could sit next to any character from a Wes Anderson film on a long haul flight. Who would it be and where would you be flying? Uh, you know, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that any character that Bill Murray has ever played, <laughs> I would like to sit next to on a long haul flight to anywhere. <laughs> I, I have to just say that man has to be one of the most fascinating personalities and individuals I've ever read about, heard of, mm. you know, I've never had the opportunity uh or, or pleasure of meeting him in person, but he has no shortage of stories is what we tend to hear. Mm -hmm. And I would love to just pick his brain for whether it's an hour or a long haul flight. Uh, I don't think I'd be sleeping on that flight. That's for sure. <laughs> Good choice. And now let's get back to some reality. So since starting the AWA Instagram account, you've amassed over 1 million followers, or as you call them, fellow adventurers. And this has afforded you the chance to essentially explore the world as you capture these adventures for Instagram. Is there a particularly noteworthy destination that you've explored in recent years? Let me see. I feel like Vienna was actually one of our earliest quote-unquote adventures, and it was one of the most beautiful places. They had these small little museums that we never really were expecting to see. There was a clock museum. There was a museum of a museum of snow globes <laughs> and, a, <laughs> and a museum of globes, like world globes. But I think our favorite museum had to be the Albertina Museum. The Albertina has an incredible architectural structure to it, but it also has these incredible rooms inside that are painted this perfect teal and these pops of yellow and orange and pink. And they have been wallpapered like that forever. That's, that is how they were. Mm. And understanding the history behind that place was just incredible. And there was a place around the corner that was probably our favorite spot, which was the Spanish Riding Museum. There's one place in the world where this specific type of horse is bred and trained. And it's like these white stallions. And it's in the middle of the city, so you would never really think to have horse stables in the in the middle of the city. Not at all. But there it is. One of the most incredible uh, displays of I I'm I'm not I'm not one for to watch dressage or or any other sort of <laughs> horse acrobatics, <laughs> but it was such an insane thing to see. I mean, the way that they had these horses trained was unbelievable, but the venue in which you're sitting with these huge columns. It was just incredible. And we were very lucky to be able to go and uh, take a peek behind the scenes and go up into the stables and get some incredible vantage points from, from the tops of these buildings that just had been around for so, so long. It was just unbelievable. It sounds like such an unusual experience and the pageantry of it must have been quite Remarkable. Yeah. And whilst we're uh, geographically speaking still in Europe, I wanted to ask you about your trip to Milan. And in particular, I believe that there is a cafe in Milan called Barluce that was designed by Wes Anderson himself. So yeah. what was that like? 
Well, that was an incredible experience just the same. It was something directly out of a Wes Anderson film, and it was the only, it's actually the only place that we have ever featured on our feed that was specifically put together by the real Wes Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) But it was absolutely beautiful. It's actually located within, I'm going to butcher this, but Fondazione Prada. So Prada has their foundation in Milan. And it's a complex that kind of expands on on this spatial typologies and, and they exhibit all this art. But within there is the most, you know, authentically Wes Anderson Bar Luce, which he he designed. So it's like stepping into the whimsical world of his films. It really is. There's definitely a lot of uh of pieces from his films that you could say from there. But, you know, they have this incredible furniture, veneered wood wall panels, and so many different colors that are just reminiscent of Italian culture and aesthetics from like the 50s and 60s. Um, You know, you have these two pinball machines that sit up against this wall that has this wood paneling and this wallpaper with a perfectly placed schoolhouse clock directly in the middle of the two of them. Um, And the pink and green uh, pastel menus that they provide you and the patterned tile floors. I mean, the whole thing is just directly out of a Wes Anderson film. That is so funny. And the actual pinball machines I've heard are from Life Aquatic. Yes. Yeah. One of them is. I think the one is from uh, Zisu. Yeah. They're they're both from films that he did produce. Were you just so excited going there being a total Wes Anderson fanboy? Oh, I absolutely was. I mean, <laughs> it is the one spot I was looking forward to the most because after finding all these places that were so accidentally Wes Anderson to find that something that was actually yeah. Wes Anderson, I was excited to see how we had been, uh, how well we had been doing when you put the two together. <gasps> how fabulous. I had that cafe on my wish list for so long and now you've just re-inspired me to go there. And on that same trip, you actually visited Lake Como. Can you tell the listeners what you got up to there and maybe some highlights from that adventure? Absolutely. Lake Como was unbelievable. You know, we rented a car and drove up these tiny little roads to get there and took pit stops along the way to take in the absolutely stunning views. We stayed in an Airbnb that was just some woman's home. It had a small, tiny little balcony that fit like two chairs And we just sat out there and looked over the lake as the ferries kind of came back and forth and the mountains and the clouds in the distance. Um, We took a trip to Tremezzo, Mm -hmm. which is just across the lake. If you're ever there, I mean, you can't really avoid it, but taking the ferry is just one of the most interesting little things that you can do. You just get this sense of travel and wonder and beauty then looking out the window, you're seeing these absolutely gorgeous structures and just this most crisp blue lake you could ever imagine. You know, Tremezzo is such a tiny little village and it's along the lakefront and has all these small shops and kind of narrow paths that lead up this hill. And we popped into the Grand Hotel Tremezzo, which, I mean, if you're able to check that out, it's one of the most interesting hotels and one of the most beautiful places. I mean, it was... I think it was opened in early 1900 and all of the rooms are decorated in like pastel yellow and blue and greens and all the furniture is period furniture with antique paintings and it just has 
Ugh, it was unbelievable. It's just one of those grand European old world hotels, basically what the Grand Budapest Hotel is really based on. And you can almost imagine, um, just a warning, this is a reference that probably only the film buffs are going to get, but the concierge being a member of the Society of the Cross Keys. (laughs) Yes, you absolutely could. And I love those old-fashioned hotels. You feel as though you've stepped back into a bygone era the moment that you enter the lobby. And I recently stayed at the Belmont Hotel Splendido, um, which is another one of Italy's mm. grand dames perched high above the Bay of Portofino. And during the golden age of Hollywood, the Hotel Splendido was frequented by stars of the silver screen, such as Elizabeth Taylor and Ava Gardner, Humphrey Bogart, I think Rita Hayworth as well. So just incredibly glamorous. Was Hotel Trumezzo similar in that sense? Oh, absolutely. They uh, they have these four historic suites that kind of pay homage to some of to some of the women in the past who have connections to the lake, including Greta Garbo and and Princess Carlotta, and just it was incredible going out onto these balconies with these draped orange, bright orange awnings and looking out through these wrought iron gates onto the lake and the the, the mountains ahead. It was oh, just an incredible experience. How gorgeous is that? Uh, While we're on the topic of splendid architecture and old world charm, I've been meaning to ask you because I know that you and your wife are particularly fond of Buenos Aires. Why does the Argentine capital have such a special place in your heart? Buenos Aires is and always will be one of our favorite places. I mean, we had spent so much time there early on and it was the only place that we've ever gone twice. Uh, not just because it has amazing food and amazing people, but the architecture there is just out of this world. I mean, I think that there's just so many hidden gems there that you would never really expect. And, you know, I think our favorite is there's this thing called the the Water Company Palace, and it's a pumping station, but it looks like a giant palace. And it's decorated in in this incredible fashion. And when you walk by it, you're like, I I remember we were we met up with somebody down there who was taking us around and showing us, you know, co- kind of the B sides of uh, Buenos Aires. I remember walking by it and saying, "What? Who lives there?" And she was like, "Uh, nobody. <laughs> it, it is a it's a water pumping station. Wow. So you know, there's yeah, it's it's." Uh, this French Renaissance palace-esque location that has, you know, multicolor terracotta tiles that were imported from British ceramics makers mm. and all of these different things that just, you know, a, a mansard roof and okay, that's a pumping station. I mean, Buenos Aires was one of the mo- one of the most wealthy places in the world at one time, and they put their wealth to good use in in creating some incredible places that are still around today and can still be enjoyed. Totally. And that faded grandeur and the palatial architecture and the stately style of the buildings, uh, especially the pastel pink government house that the city is so famous for. Buenos Aires Mm. is called the Paris of South America for that very reason. And being an architecture enthusiast, I can see why you are so drawn to the city. Have you been to one of my favourite bookstores in the world? It's in Recoleta and it's in the beautiful old theatre. Yes, it's... um... Uh, El, the Ateno Grand Splendid. I'd probably butchered that too. <laughs> With- but yeah, that is, wow. When you walk into that place, I mean, okay, how about we take a theater, 
that is now a bookshop, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Like the unbelievable. frescoed ceiling and the elaborate balconies that are now brimming with books. I mean, it's just, I remember walking in there and just, it took my breath away. I couldn't believe how such an incredible theater had been turned and used into such a, a, a wonderful way. That's that's one of the cool things that we always love, and I'm I'm glad that you brought this place up because the reason that we started diving into the stories behind these places is because they were once one thing, but how did they become what they are today, right? Mm. And behind these walls and behind these facades, thousands of lives have been lived, thousands of stories have been told that maybe we've never heard or never really known. Mm. And so to see something so interesting as a theater be repurposed as a one of the most beautiful bookstores I think I've ever set foot in or even set eyes on, uh, that just hits us right right in the feels. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think this leads us on really nicely to talking about your brand new book, which I'm so excited about because I know that it's going to look amazing on oh my, my coffee table. Uh, <laughs> so why did you decide to commit the AWA photos and stories to the page? And what are we to expect from this exciting new book? Well, I have uh, I have my copy in front of me, and I'm going to say that after working on this for a little over two and a half years, it has far exceeded our expectations. <laughs> um, 200 different locations we explore from literally every single continent, including Antarctica. We had made it a point to make sure that we explored the big, the small, and everything in between. Uh, we worked with 180 different photographers from 50 different countries to come up with these incredible photos. And we took a lot of time to dive very, very deep behind the, the, the facades and find these interesting stories that existed there that honestly... I never would have guessed on some of them. They are some of my most favorite stories that we have put together. And I'm beyond excited for the community to pick this book up and experience it It's themselves because I'm personally a fan of print, right? It's something that is, I, I yes, I can read the articles from the newspaper online, but I'd rather just have the newspaper in my hand. I, I don't know why something physical about it, holding it, feeling it, touching it, it allows us to share these in a different way manner, right? You're able to really dive into the photos and see so much more of the detail than you ever would be able to either on a computer screen or on your phone. And to be able to read these more in-depth stories in a fashion that you might want to kind of sit down and curl up with a book and let's just escape for a little while. Let's maybe add to our own bucket list. Mm. So we're so excited about that. I couldn't agree with you more. And there's something about the weight of a book and being able to turn the pages and smell the pages. And you just, you can't replace that. And hopefully they will be stocking it in our favorite bookshop in Buenos Aires as well. Yes. I, you know what? I'm going to, I would like to find out. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. And you'll have to let us know because we might have some listeners in Argentina who'd like to pick up the book from that bookstore. But I've been dying to ask you this. How did it feel having Wes Anderson write the foreword to your book? Oh, Mike, well, (laughs) that is one of the most perfect seals of approval that we could have received for this, uh, you know, this, this printed collection. It was one of the most amazing things, not just getting sure his, his, his approval to allow us to, to create this, Mm. but 
when he agreed to pen a few words. That was unbelievable. And then when I read the words, <gasps> it was even better. So I'm beyond thrilled with that. That is like the ultimate fanboy experience. I mean, you couldn't <laughs> have dreamt that up as a kid. Look, I'm not an author. I'm not a photographer. I'm not any of these things. But we somehow have just cultivated this incredible community and these places that have afforded us the opportunity to put this book together and the fact that he gave us his blessing <sighs> but not only gave us his blessing but gave us his words as well i mm. uh, you know if you asked me two and a half years ago hey do you think this is possible i'd yeah. say i would not guess that in a heartbeat. no one would and does he have a favorite photograph or place that's featured in the book he absolutely does. And it's actually mentioned in the forward. Okay. I don't know if I should give it away or not. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Okay. It's, it's in Croatia and it's in a national park. Okay. But it is not what you would expect. So I'm just going to, I'll leave it at that because honestly, when you open up the book and you look at the forward and you see the photo next to it, it's, it was, and it's one of our favorite photos from the book too. It was one of the first ones that we, chose and we're like this is a hundred percent in so when he came back and said that that was one of his favorites too mm. we were we were smitten <laughs> oh amazing and it sounds like he is a fan of your work so if you're listening to this podcast wes get your people to contact my people because i'd love to interview you too <laughs> <laughs> but wally you have described awa as your personal bucket list. So which places are you keen to visit after seeing all of those incredible images? The the number one spot on Amanda's list, my wife Amanda, mm -hmm. who's also my partner in crime with this whole thing, is and mine, just the same, is uh, Port Lockroy in Antarctica. It is a teeny tiny post office that has one of the most sought after passport stamps yeah. and uh, postage kind of uh, stamp from their little post office on the on this giant glacier. So no that way. that's all, that's the top. You know what, Wally? I was supposed to stop at Port Lockroy on my first Antarctic expedition earlier this year. Oh, get out! But the weather meant that our itinerary changed, and so that's just the nature of Antarctica. It's a wild frontier, so mm -hmm. you don't get to stick to an A to a B to C schedule. You might have to change it up, and that's what happened. So the downside was we never made it to Port Lockroy, but the plus side was that we actually got to cross the Antarctic Circle. Wow. Which is... Congratulations. Oh, That's amazing. Yeah. It's something that very few people get to do, so it was super exciting. But we did stop at a Ukrainian research station where we had our passport stamped and we sent postcards home, and I've actually got uh. mine right in front of me on my desk right now. Um, it's It sounds very cheesy, but even grown men get excited about it because it's such an otherworldly experience. Wow. Well, just know that Amanda is incredibly jealous of just that, <laughs> as am I. <laughs> you know, we typically, uh, you know, may have different places that we want to see, but that is 100% the top. 100%. And you know what, Wally? You'd probably appreciate this. We got to drink vodka made from glacial ice melt. Oh my gosh. That must have been incredible. Yeah, it was made by the Ukrainian researchers. And so you're doing shots of uh, vodka. Um, you're hanging out with the penguins. It's an Antarctic style <laughs> party. And it's really quite surreal. And I hope that you and Amanda do get to visit Port Lockroy one day. But it's been such a pleasure having you on the escape part as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure.
That was the wonderful Wally Koval, founder of Accidentally Wes Anderson. After two and a half years of collaborating with over 180 photographers from all around the world, the Accidentally Wes Anderson book is now out on the shelves. It has the Wes Anderson tick of approval, and I'm not sure about you, but I'm certainly intrigued to find out which photo from the collection is his favourite. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.